to celebrate this day with us at the chapel. And just a little about me, if you don't know me, I'm married to my beautiful wife, Paula. I've been married about 12 years, and we have four kids, nine, seven, six, and four. Now, being around my kids is such a great joy for me, but when I'm around them a lot, I know one thing is going to happen over and over and over and over again. They're going to ask a lot of questions. I mean a lot of questions. And then that question is going to lead to that question, which is going to lead to that question. And then sometimes they ask questions, and I'm like, there is no way they're being serious right now. Like, how do you answer this? And then you look at their face, and they're being dead serious. You're like, okay, mom, why don't you take this one? If you're around young kids, you know what I'm saying. And so the other day, uh, I was on Google, because Google knows everything, of course. And I was looking at some of the favorite stories or questions ever reported uh, to Google on this one website. And I was literally at Panera working, and I was hysterically laughing out loud. People thought I was probably nuts. And so I brought three of my favorite questions that kids have asked before, all right? Here's the first one for you. My four-year-old asked my two-year-old if it was time to fight. My two-year-old checked the calendar and said, no, not yet. And then this parent said, well, at least they're organized. I don't think my kids have ever asked if they can fight. They just think every day is WrestleMania in our house and they just start to fight. But these kids wanted to ask if it was time. My toddler asked me to give her chicken nuggets a checkup. After giving all the nuggets a medical exam, I realized my toddler was asking for ketchup. (laughs) Checkup, ketchup. I mean, these poor kids probably looking at mom, like mutilating these chicken nuggets. Like, what are you doing, mom? This is really awkward. Just ketchup. But my favorite one. My son asked me, where does poo come from? I was a little uncomfortable, but gave him an honest explanation. I want to pause there and just think about what that mom or dad had to say in that moment. Pointing to things, trying to get pictures to show them coming here, going out there. Anyways, but then watch this. He looked a little perplexed, stared at me in stunned silence for a few seconds and said, Antigger? Winnie the Pooh, Tigger, yeah. Now there's another question that kids have asked throughout the ages, not just kids, but students and adults, and I think it's one of those questions that we need to think about today, especially on this Easter Sunday. And the question goes like this. If Easter is the celebration of Jesus rising from the dead, how can we be sure the resurrection actually happened? So we sing about this Jesus rising from the grave. We're saying these phrases like, he is risen, he's risen indeed. But I don't know about you, but it's not every day that I notice or see a dead person rising from the grave. That's crazy. It's miraculous. So how do we know for sure it happened? I don't think you and I were there. We're told in scriptures all throughout the ages, is there proof? Is there evidence that it happened? The Apostle Paul, he's writing to this church in Corinth. And this church in Corinth is struggling with this idea of a resurrection. Here's what Paul says, which is interesting. He says, but tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of your preaching is useless and your faith is useless. Now, the New Testament's written in Greek. That Greek word for useless literally means untrue, empty, or devoid of truth. 
In other words, Paul says, look, if the resurrection didn't happen, then what you believe is a sham. It is a lie. In fact, honestly, if it didn't happen, all of you are being duped right now and we might as well just go home. I mean, that's what Paul's saying. The faith that you believe in Jesus, if he didn't rise from the grave, he's still dead. It's useless. Why do you believe it anyways? What if it is true? What if Jesus really did rise from the grave and there's proof or evidence that it happened? What does that mean? Well, obviously it means it's true that what Christianity says is believable and there's profound effects for our lives both in this world and the world to come. Now, some of you who are like me that are skeptical, saying you can say that, I still don't believe it. What I want to do for the next few moments, I want to give you two kinds of evidences to hopefully show you that it indeed happened. But the evidences that I'm going to present to you is not to convince you or coerce you into believing something, because that's not what God does. If you've ever been forced religion or forced belief in God, that's not something somebody should do. It's your choice. You can believe whatever you want. But if the evidence holds up, my question is, what are you going to do about it? It's one thing to understand that this could really happen. It's another thing to understand that it happened for you. That we can't just leave here today and say, oh yeah, a dead man rose from the grave. I'm going to go back to my normal life. If it's true, we can't. It changes everything. So here are the two kind of evidences I want to look at. First, objective evidence, logical evidence, things that make sense in our brain, things we could bring to a court of law that would substantiate that Jesus indeed rose from the grave. Objective, logical evidence that indeed happened. But it's not just head evidence that we need to understand. What about the heart evidence or subjective evidence? If it did happen and people believed it, they shouldn't be the same anymore. We should see life change. Somebody literally changing from the inside out. Somebody becoming their very best version of themselves. Is there proof of that? Here's what Paul says. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, he said this, I passed on to you what was most important and what had been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. So Paul is explaining, here is what we know, that Jesus died on the cross, was buried in the ground, and then he rose from the grave. Now again, that's not enough evidence to prove that it happened. So Paul goes on and says this, He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. Now, to me, it's evidence, but not enough to believe in it. Why? Because these guys followed Jesus everywhere. Of course, they don't want this guy that they followed to be dead. They want what they spent three years on to be believable. And so they could have said, hey, there's Jesus. He rose from the grave. And everyone's like, yeah, you're going to say that. You're his friend. What about this then? After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. If you're trying to prove something in the court of law, you need what? Witnesses. How many witnesses do you need to corroborate a story? If you're a lawyer, you know it's between two, three, four, something like that. If you have that, it's an open and shut case. 500? Paul says, hey, by the way, a lot of them are alive. Go ask them yourself. Here's why Paul said that. I could tell you a million people saw it, but if they're all dead, how do you know they really saw it? 
So Paul says, you're skeptical? Go ask John or go ask Cindy or go ask Bartholomew or whatever their names are back then. They will tell you. 500 people, many of whom are still alive, go ask them and they will tell you. And you could say, well, what if they made up a story? They could have. A few fanatics could get together, two, three, four of them together, say, hey, here's what we saw, here's what happened, make sure to tell everybody that. But over 500 people? Can't make up that story. It's going to change along the way unless it's true and they just said what they saw. Or my favorite evidence Then he was seen by James, and later by all the apostles, James is Jesus' half-brother. Let me pause here and just ask you a question. Could you imagine growing up in the same home as Jesus? Like, every time that you got in trouble, your parents would always know it was you. You couldn't blame it on Jesus. He's perfect. Like, everything. These poor brothers of Jesus, they... Always got in trouble because Jesus was always innocent. Some of you are like, yeah, so was my brother and sister with my mom too. (laughs) Jesus was always innocent. James, his half-brother, grew up with Jesus, saw him, and you may say, okay, that's not really good evidence because it's family. Family can lie for one another. Family can cover for one another. But what if I told you that James, the half-brother of Jesus, did not think he was God? In fact, John, who is a disciple and the writer of one of the Gospels, says this about James. Even his own brothers did not believe in him. Hey, we can fool strangers, we can even fool our friends, but you can't fool family. And James is like, there is no way that my half-brother is the Messiah, is all God, no way. And so then Jesus, he died on the cross, he's buried in the tomb, and James is like, see, Mom, told you. Maybe he wasn't as perfect as we thought. (laughs) Until he rose from the grave. Jesus shows up to his half-brother, James, and what does James do? He goes from skeptic to servant. Go to the end of your Bible, look at the book of James written by Jesus' half-brother. He went from antagonistic to a writer of this book, and in the beginning of the book, it says, James, a servant of Jesus. He was so humbled That Jesus was who he said he was. He didn't even say, I was one of Jesus' brothers. He just said, servant of the Lord. If that's not enough for you, what about this? Last of all, as though I've been born at the wrong time, Paul says, I also saw him, for I am the least of the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. The guy writing this, his name is Paul, but he was not always known as Paul. He was known as Saul. Saul was a Jew, a zealous Jew. It is what he knew from childhood. It was his whole framework, his whole worldview. So what does he do? He hears about this Jew named Jesus who starts this movement and he is so upset that this guy is stealing people from his religion. This guy is starting this movement. Paul, who was Saul at the time, starts to kill Christians. He's so angry that this is happening, that this guy claims he was God, rose from the grave, started this movement, he starts to kill these people. So one day, Jesus shows up. The risen Christ shows up to Saul, turning him to Paul, and he's like, dude, stop killing my people. In fact, not only do I not want you to stop killing them, I want you to join them. Paul goes from murderer to missionary. 500 people, many of whom were alive, A half-brother, who 
who needed a lot of convincing that the guy that he shared a room with was God and a guy who turned his worldview upside down, stopped killing Christians, and then joined him. You may say, not enough. Well, how about this? First people who show up to Jesus' tomb are women. We read this in Luke chapter 24, and you may say, what's wrong with that? Listen, I love my woman here. I love my daughters. Nothing wrong with women, of course, but in that day, in the Roman and Jewish culture, women did not have a right to speak out. They couldn't testify in court. It was a male-driven society. Women were pushed to the sides. So let me ask you this. If you want to write a fanatical story to make up a religion, and you need as much proof as possible, you are going to write the first people that saw Jesus rise from the grave would be men, because men were credible witnesses. But we have women here. Which means the gospel writer didn't have to make up a story. All he did was write what happened. You don't have to believe it or not, but it's incredible that it's actually women. People didn't really believe it, but Jesus didn't care. He didn't have to prove himself to anybody. This is who he wanted to discover him. Or what about the global movement of the church? What's so fascinating about Jesus is that he chooses these 12 guys, and these 12 guys love him. Why? Because he's supposedly the Messiah, and the Messiah was supposed to come on a white horse and knock off the Roman government, and they were going to have a position in his kingdom. It was great. Until this guy starts talking about dying. What do you mean dying? You're supposed to go and Kick some Roman booty. Like, what do you mean dying here? All of a sudden, the disciples, they're there. They see this Jesus arrested, betrayed. And as he's going to the cross to be crucified, his closest friends are nowhere to be found. They're hiding. They're scared. They don't want to have happen to them what's happening to Jesus. And then what happened? All of a sudden, Jesus shows up like, hey guys, here I am. I told you. All of a sudden, the disciples are like, this guy did say he was going to die. And then he said he was going to rise from the grave. There he is. And all of a sudden, these disciples are emboldened. They're going to tell everybody about their faith. They're in prison. They're persecuted. And then 10 out of 12 of them are murdered. You don't die for something that's not real. You don't switch your whole worldview from Judaism to Christianity if it's not real. And yet, Thousands upon thousands began to do that. And then over time, Christianity was such a threat to different leaders that they tried to kill Christians, persecute Christians, make Christianity illegal in their country. And yet what happened? Not even the gates of hell could prevail over the church. The church kept growing and growing and growing, and it's still growing around the world today. In fact, there are brothers and sisters right now who can't just walk into a church and then leave and go home. If they want to worship Jesus, they have to do it underground with the threat of being jailed or killed, but they still proclaim Jesus today. Why? Because it's real. And it continues to grow and grow and grow. When you look at the evidence as a whole, you're thinking, you can't really make up those things. Who would make up a story like that? But it's not just objective evidence that matters. It can be logical and real, but if it doesn't transform, then it means nothing. The Apostle Paul, he goes on to say this in verse 21. He says, so you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another 
man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Paul is logical because, look, here's what we all have in common. Different parents live in different places. We all have different kinds of money and those kinds of things. But here's what you and I have in common. At the end of the life, we go back into the ground. We all die. Same here. All of us die. We don't want to think about it. It's scary. It's sad. It rips our hearts out when it happens to those in whom we love. But it's reality. And Paul says it's reality for those who don't believe in Christ. But if you do believe in Jesus, let me tell you, there's this thing called new life. And Jesus means it in twofold. One, the first is life after death. Our last breath here is our first breath into eternity. We die or we watch other people die, but we don't have to be so broken and grieving over it. We can also have hope because the grave does not win. Jesus wins. He defeated the grave so that you and I can defeat the grave. This new life is not just the afterlife, but it's here, life. So many of us walk through life and we just get used to living in this broken, dark world and it's monotonous and we're not happy. And so how do we make ourselves happy? We buy a lot of things and we become addicted to our phones because if we're on our phones, I don't have to deal with real life or I go to other addictions or other things that make me happy and it's no wonder we're the most miserable culture ever in the world. And Jesus says, I have new life. You can live, live with purpose, live with promise, live with hope, live with peace. And all those things you can't purchase, I'll give them for free. They'll be in you and they'll continue to come out of you. It'll make you into the very best version of yourself, which is Jesus. New life. How many of us here are settling just for death? Not just death when we die, but when we're dying every single day, believing a lie that we can't actually live. New life is available in Jesus. C.S. Lewis, one of the most famous writers, wrote this logical book called Mere Christianity, a great understanding of the reasons to believe in God. And then C.S. Lewis, he says this, I have no answers anymore. I've given you everything I have. All I have now is the life that I have lived. In other words, C.S. Lewis goes from atheist to Christ follower, and he's telling everybody, if you don't believe the objective proof, that's fine, but look at me. You know who I was, you know what I've believed, you know where I've come from, and look at me now. That's a miracle in itself. For 17 years of my life, I did what many of us did with our kids and grandkids this morning. I opened an Easter basket and ate way too much candy. And then I did whatever else my family did, and then I went to bed. I didn't know that people gathered into a church to worship this guy who rose from the grave. No idea. So not only did I never think I'd be a Christian, I never thought I'd be a pastor. When you meet with your counselors in school and you write down the very things that you want to do in life, FBI agent, oh yeah. An airline pilot. A, both of them are way better than being a pastor. And B, some of you are like, you couldn't do either. And you're right. <laughs> Too scared to be an FBI agent. I'm a pastor. And as a pastor, I have to tell you two things. And I want you to know, if you never come back to this church, if you don't want to get to know me, let me tell you just two things. One, I am so, so broken. 
Too many churches have pastors who stand up here and act like their marriage is perfect, that they are perfect, and then you walk away and you're just like, man, I'm never gonna be perfect. The reason is, is because they're lying. We are, I am, just as broken and flawed and messed up as you are. If you got to know me, you would know that very quickly. If you came inside my brain, you'd wanna get out very quickly. I am messed up. I'm pretty sure my wife just said amen to that too. No, she didn't. Thank you. You don't sound like my wife. <laughs> but the person that probably said it knows me, knows how flawed I am. But all I can tell you is this. As flawed as I am, how I wish I was more like a lot of other people, and especially Jesus, I am forgiven. I really do wake up every single day, even though life is hard, I know I have a purpose and a reason to live. If you're not a Christ follower, Look at the evidence, not just the objective evidence, but the subjective evidence, meaning do you want more and you were made for more and if you've never uh, found that, and the reason why you're created maybe today is that time for you. But as Christ followers, let me tell you something. I am glad that you are here, but Easter is not one Sunday a year. It is 365 days a year. There are people in this world that don't know Jesus, and the reason they don't know Jesus is because we're trying to get them in this place to hear from somebody like me. No, no, no. They need to hear from you. They need to see it in you. They need to know the tomb is empty, not because they came to church, because they've seen it in your life. You and I are not called to live for ourselves. We get the greatest opportunity to live for Jesus and thus be the proof that someone's looking for. Here's the truth. The proof is right in front of you. Look at me, a human being through and through, messy and sin prone since my first day. Yet still God's love is unhindered on my worst day. His friendship goes beyond just knowing my first name. He knows the hairs upon my head, my every thought and fear, and the words I speak before they meet my lips, the truth that I so desperately need. Yes, he speaks to me, gently yet boldly, with encouragement and love, he walks with me, directing my steps, holding my hand, correcting my detours in those moments when I steal the reins. There is so much This is the new life I live, still human, still messy, but considered clean and called into hope for eternity, hope that starts now, that works within me, regenerating day by day, labeling me with righteousness and purity that I could never have earned by myself. This is the new life I live. I hope it's so clear to the world, to every person who glances my way or stands behind me at the grocery store whose cubicle shares a wall with mine. I hope it's so clear that I am risen in God's arms. And I hope that's for you too. I mean, think about it. What if you're the proof that someone's waiting for? The miracle that someone's fiercely praying for? What if every moment is an open door to point them towards peace they've never known before? What if this example goes beyond just words? As a common saying goes, I'm sure you've heard that actions speak quite loudly and we're called to boast. So boast in God in all things, not just when things are going right, but when things go wrong, 
we mess up, when you feel like the worst example, seize the opportunity before you. Wipe the sweat from your brow, dust the dirt off your knees, take a moment to cry if you have to, and then breathe in deep and stand back up and keep this pain. In your weakness, point to his incomparable strength. In your suffering, point to him who suffered for us. In your triumph, praise the Lord and offer up your thanks. And in your failings, still praise the Lord and so build up a confident faith. Your life is the perfect canvas for God to show you his glory. So live this new life with new confidence. After Jesus rose from the grave, we we call that Act 1. Act 2 is the story of the church who became the hands and feet of Jesus, who, like Meg said, became the proof. And over the next few months, we want to study this story in depth. And so I want to just give you a preview of what that looks like. So over the next few months, we're going to be studying the whole book of Acts here at church. And so if you are a guest, we'd love to invite you back to see how the story continues. Maybe you're here for the first time in a long time in your chapel family. Come on home. We miss you. For everyone that's here today, we want to end our service the way that we began it. With a declaration that millions upon millions are saying today because it's the reality of life. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Happy Easter.